This is series two of Lazarus Theatre Company's podcast, Spotlight On. A chance to turn the spotlight on the people behind the scenes. We'll meet the performers, the creatives, the collaborators, as well as those who inspire and provoke our work. Welcome to Spotlight On. Hello, I'm Gavin harrington Odedra, producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I'm Ricky Dukes, artistic director of Lazarus Theatre Company. Hello, Ricky. How are you? I'm good. I just had a crisis moment. I thought I'd lost my tea. Oh, no. Oh, I was going to go stop the whole thing. <laughs> call the whole thing off. Done. It. I'm tea. done. Uh, what I've done is, because I'm a creature of habit, I normally have my tea to my right seat. And because I was just trying to tidy up a bit, um, I'd move it to my left. Oh, no. So that, viewers, is what we call a first world crisis. It's... Um, it's really a problem. But there Creature we are. It's all habit. sorted now. Don't call the cops or the fire brigade. See what I'm oh, doing there? Oh, uh, foreshadowing no there. Everything's fabulous. The tea is now restored. Great, great. And how's the redecoration going? Oh, yes. So as avid listeners will know, uh, Lazarus HQ is going under a, I was going to say an extensive redecoration. They just painted everything magnolia. Um, it's not. It's it's stalled. It's it's stopped. Nothing's happening. Well, apart from a gurgling toilet, but we'll talk about that another time. Uh, it's stopped. It's all come around to a halt. So oh. I just have lots of workmen coming around to keep measuring the same thing. And by the same thing, listeners, I mean the rooms, nothing else. They're just measuring the dimensions of the floors for carpets. But apparently there's been a, a, a worldwide shortage in carpet, which I sort of in normal times would go, what a load of old baloney. But then again, I just, you know, sometimes you turn the TV on, you think there's a shortage of all sorts, isn't there? Apparently Christmas toys as well. Christmas toys are going to be a massive shortage. Buy now, get them now, quick everyone. Oh, we haven't learned anything from the last two years about like panic buying, have we? No, well, I, I've been trying to panic buy carpet, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's all a bit of a mess. It's all a bit of a doodah. And I have get, I am getting a little bit bored now of my makeshift uh, office space. Uh, but, um, you know, there are worse things in the world, aren't there? Like losing your tea. Which you didn't, thank goodness. So thank we're all OK. World is, world is put to rights. Great. And how was your week? My week was okay, thank you. Um, I actually hadn't prepared. I hadn't even thought you might ask me. Um, well, oh, well, we'll move uh, on then, if you like. <laughs> no, my week has been busy, actually. I've been... Uh, so um, anyone who knows, we're recording this the day before uh, Salome Online goes online. So uh, our first performance of Salome Online is tomorrow. So I've been uh, frantically trying to get all those tickets booked in so that people can actually watch it. So that's been fun. Lots of, lots of administration over here. And it's exciting seeing people's um, where people are from, isn't it? You kind of go, oh, blimey, wow, we really reached that far. That's Absolutely. the great thing about this streaming stuff, I suppose, is that um, we, we, we definitely, well, I was going to say we're maybe, but we're definitely reaching people that we just wouldn't reach normally. Mm. Um, and just a big shout out, really, to all the venues, all the theatre companies, all the buildings that have um, helped promote it, really, and push it out to their mailing list and, and uh, just let their communities know about it. So we're definitely, definitely greeting people uh, and hopefully hopefully they like it, we'll see, eh? Uh, yeah. Sharing this um, quite weird, bizarre, rarely performed thing that is Salome. Absolutely. Um, yeah, really looking forward to it. And uh, 10, 10 days that people can watch it. So 10 opportunities, essentially. Yeah, amazing. Well, this week, Ricky, we talked to Lazarus associate and actor, Lewis Davidson. Lewis is originally from Aberdeen in Scotland, and he trained at Kingston University Drama and has over 15 years professional experience in classical theatre. He has trained in aerial performance and dance and also in stage combat at the Globe Theatre London. His first production with Lazarus Theatre Company was Macbeth at the Blue Elephant Theatre in 2011, where he played Banquo. In the subsequent 10 years, Lewis has been in seven Lazarus productions. He played Don Alba in Frederick Schiller's Don Carlos at the Blue Elephant Theatre in 2011, Edmund the Bastard and Oliver Du Bois in our Shakespeare rep of King Lear and As You Like It at The Space in 2012, then another rep of King Lear and this time Christopher Marlowe's Dido, Queen of Carthage at Greenwich Theatre in 2013, where he reprised his role of Edmund and played Jupiter. Then, two years later, Lewis came back to play Vendici in Thomas Middleton's, Middleton's Revengers Tragedy at the Jack Studio Theatre in 2015. And finally, in a full circle moment in 2020, Lewis came back to the fold again to play Banquo in Macbeth at the Greenwich Theatre. 
Also, in the years between 2015 and 2020, Lewis trained and became a full-time firefighter. Lewis, thank you for joining us and welcome to Spotlight On. Yes, thank you very much. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Good. That is a rather large bio there. Um, 15 years <laughs> in the industry. That's that's very impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's stretching back when I was back up in Aberdeen, I suppose, as well and stuff before I moved down to London. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've done a few bits of classical theatre over the years. I've mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. It's kind of my favourite thing, really. <laughs> Great. Well, hopefully we can get into why that is in a little while. Yeah. What have you been up to since we last saw you in 2020? Oh, well, I mean, with the fire brigade, I've kind of, we've been pretty uh, stretched, to be honest, with uh, numbers down and stuff like that. Obviously, a lot of people self-isolating. And uh, we also, the um, because the ambulances were so short, some of our drivers who are trained up, um, they then went and helped drive the ambulances. So right. because of that, we've been quite short. So there's been a lot of uh, overtime and, you know, extra shifts and so on. So it's been quite mad the last couple of years with that. Is that getting any better now? It's starting to, yeah. It, things are beginning to slowly get back to normal. But um, yeah, we're still quite short. So it's all a bit mad. <laughs> and do, did you find that you were getting a lot more call outs than you w were before, before people were living at home? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of changed. Like it was, you know, before obviously you had a lot more sort of say car accidents and whatever. And then during the pandemic, there's not a lot of that because there's not as many people on the roads. But then we're getting a lot of sort of house fires because more people were in the house all the time doing uh, silly things like having a deciding to have a barbecue on their balcony because they can't go anywhere else and setting their balcony on fire. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, we had quite a few of those. So, yeah, no, wow. it's, it's been interesting. Okay. Um, so going right back to the beginning, as you were saying, back, back in Aberdeen, how did you, how did you start your life as an actor? What, you know, tell us your origin story. You know, it, it was a bit of a funny one. I was, um, I'd finished school and I was, uh, I was kind of working in a cocktail bar up in Aberdeen and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, like, you know, what I wanted to do at university and stuff. And actually I went to uh, speak to a career advisor and he kind of sat me down and asked me a lot of different sort of questions that I was kind of like, well, you know, I didn't really know what's this about sort of thing. And uh, at the end of it, he went, right. So speaking to you about, you know, the things that you like doing and the kind of person you are and stuff like that. said, have you ever considered acting? And I went, mm, not really. <laughs> and he was like, well, it just seems like that's the kind of thing that you would actually really enjoy doing. It kind of suits your personality and stuff. So, you know, there's some good acting courses in there. Aberdeen College and then you can go on and do it at university and drama school and stuff so he convinced me to go and have a meeting with um the head of the drama course at Aberdeen College so I went down and uh we had a meeting and we did a did a bit of a workshop with a few people and I decided you know what? I absolutely love this this is this is totally for me so yeah I did that and then I did the um one-year college drama course at uh, Aberdeen College and then from that, yeah, went on to go to university, to uh, King's University Drama. So, yeah, that's kind of how it all started. <laughs> and had, you hadn't done any acting before before you met with this careers advisor? No, I'd, I'd done probably a play when I was like 10. <laughs> right. But that was that was about it. Um, yeah, so I was quite late kind of getting involved with it all. But, yeah, no, I was really, really enjoyed it. And I'm so glad that I had a chat with that that man at the careers office it's <laughs> pretty extraordinary actually because i think most people's stories is a, a career advisor told them go nowhere near that don't do it don't do it or, yeah. or a few other people have said that they the careers advisor just didn't have a clue or, or idea about any of that because presumably it was such a sort of left field or you know sort of completely out of off their off their radar so couldn't really advise so that's sort of extraordinary so let's hail that career advisor everyone uh, yeah. good on them and so you came down to Kingston University. Why did you choose Kingston? So I was, um, I was kind of looking at different courses for me to kind of come down and do. And I really wanted to move to London as well. That was kind of something that I had in my, my head that I really wanted to do that. And uh, one, of my, one of my friends who's actually on the course in Aberdeen, she uh, had done a bit of research and found the course at uh, Kingston. 
and she was telling me about it. So I had a look and I, I found that there was a really sort of emphasis on sort of classical theatre and Shakespeare. And uh, the, the course had kind of helped fund building the, uh, it had an ownership of Rose Theatre in Kingston, mm-hmm. which was built on this sort of original specifications of what the Rose Theatre was, uh, Shakespeare's theatre. And they, you know, they did sort of um, shows there. So you could do shows there. And Sir Peter Hall was a, um, I think he was a patron of the the course and stuff. And he did some workshops with us over the years as well, um, classical theatre workshops. And yeah, we got to do some shows at the Rose Theatre. So yeah, that kind of really appealed to me. And uh, yeah, so I decided to go for that. And yeah, really, really enjoyed it. It was really great course and sort of that great sort of emphasis on classical theatre, which I love. Mm-hmm. And what was your what was your journey to London like? You want you know you said you wanted to move to London. Did it did it live up to the expectations? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm still here, so yeah, <laughs> I've obviously true. yeah yeah. I mean, the thing is, like you're sort of living in a small village up in the Highlands of Scotland. You know, it's great great as a kid, kind of running around the fields and everything else. But you know, once you get to sort of an adult, I was getting a bit sort of bored of having sort of one one good cinema. One, one good restaurant <laughs> you know mm-hmm. that was uh that was about it so I decided you know I wanted to go to London and see what it was like being in the big city and uh meeting you know all sorts of different people and working with different people um and yeah I'm really glad I made that decision because it's been a great experience and so you found your love of classical theatre at Kingston University it sounds like did you also um do a lot of your physical theatre work there as well yeah, so there was, um, as part, part of the course also did sort of like, uh, that's quite a good dance course as well with um, physical theatre workshops and uh, sort of break dancing and stuff like that. So I kind of got involved with that, took on some extra classes and got taught about physical theatre. Um, so yeah, no, I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. So there was a lot of sort of different things that you could get involved with which, yeah, I really enjoyed. And I, I love physical theatre, you know, the sort of being able to tell a story using your body and movement and everything else. You know, I think you can kind of give a lot of a new interpretation to things through that sort of avenue. I think it's, yeah, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so then how did you find out about Lazarus? So I found out about Lazarus that it was, uh, I was on, it was called Casting Call Pro at the time. I think it's Mandy now. And uh, I was just looking through sort of auditions that were coming up and uh, I saw, I saw the audition for Macbeth and I was like, I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. Um, so yeah, I had to, had to read through that and then I put in my application and uh, I came down. I remember the funny thing is from an audition for Macbeth, the morning of the audition, I think like my alarm broke or something and it didn't, <laughs> it didn't wake me up uh-uh. and I woke up at the time that I was supposed to leave. And I was like, you know, sudden panic, chuck on my clothes, run out the door. And uh, I was I was rushing up to get there. And I think there was a little bit of a walk from the station to where where the audition was. And I sprinted the whole way. And I literally got there as, as you guys were ushering everyone, <coughs> sorry, everyone in the door. And uh, I kind of got away with that, but I had to mask the fact that I was just covered in sweat. <laughs> <laughs> you know hope you just maybe thought I was nervous if I mean <laughs> well it worked out didn't it yeah 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 I got away with it <laughs> do you remember Lewis being covered in sweat for that audition uh no strangely enough because because as we established that's about 15 years ago and sorry Lewis but you're 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 sweating is not something edged on my although actually you do get quite sweaty don't we because we're physical in the in auditions and rehearsals but yeah. no, I don't. I remember on that account looking at Lewis thinking, what a sweaty chap. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever it was, the, the, the lovely glow got you, got you the role of Ben Quinn Macbeth. Yeah, I had that extra energy ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that extra adrenaline. That, that's what yeah. got you through. So moving on to your work with Lazarus then, uh, as we've just said, your first uh, foray into the into the fold was was Banquo and Macbeth, the Blue Elephant. Do you remember much other than the um, stress of getting to the audition? Do you remember much of the production? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I think that was, you know what, that was something that I just absolutely loved, that whole process of, you know, creating that story. And I, and I remember the cast um, that we had for Macbeth. 
it, the Blue Elephant. Uh, it was they were just all fantastic, and I really enjoyed working with them. And there was um, such a sort of um, determination throughout the whole cast to kind of you know work as hard as possible and try and make this the best production we could possibly make it and you know tell this story in a unique and fantastic way which you know you know Macbeth is and Shakespeare in general has been done so many times over the years over you know different interpretations and so on so what I really loved was that it brought something fresh that I hadn't seen or I hadn't considered about the production and the characters and the relationships um so yeah no it was it was really really cool a really loved every bit of it and do you remember doing much kind of physical theater or physical storytelling in that production as well yeah i remember there was a there was a sort of battle scene that we uh, set up at the beginning of the production where it was kind of you know representing sort of macbeth in the sort of battle with um, the sort of norwegians and whatever and uh we kind of used physical theater to sort of show the two armies coming together and then a sort of body strewn out across the stage at the end showing the sort of end of the battle and and then the witches sort of appearing out of that and as, as part of the sort of debris of dead bodies mm. kind of giving their sort of opening uh, about meeting Macbeth on the heath and yeah it was you know that that was really cool I, re I thought that just gave such an amazing sort of visual representation do you remember what some of the I can't remember how many were, but we just sort of it mangled in the bodies and was sort of one was hanging upside down yeah <laughs> I, yeah I remember whether that was dotty but someone was sort of hanging up upside down with the when should we meet again and all of that sort of thing yeah that's quite right. bizarre yeah I think dotty was kind of like hanging over backwards with a over a body with her head sort of hanging down and um I think we used the torches as well didn't we to kind of highlight their faces within the melee of bodies so they kind of just appeared out of it so yeah no it was really really kind of striking sort of visual yeah it was really cool creepy yeah mm. <laughs> and do you remember so had you done much work uh before Macbeth where everyone was on stage all the time so you know it was an hour and a half I think straight through there's no interval you were all on stage all the time you were always doing something who did you done much work like that before not not really to be honest not one where you know the the whole cast had stayed on the stage you know for the entire production that was kind of a new thing for me but um I think that was again that was one of my sort of favorite things about it that uh I think we'd come up with this you know uh, Ricky had got us in these sort of trenches at the sides of the stage that we were representing that it was kind of like as if we were there ready always ready for battle preparing for the next time we were going to be going over the top and um, the sort of world war one sort of idea that you know that you're always sort of there prepared and uh, with that we were kind of using that sort of slow motion movement very very slow motion uh, motion so that you weren't distracting from the audience but were they to look over they would kind of see you you know passing someone a drink or you know like um having a little conversation with someone and you know it kind of helped maintain that sort of character throughout I think that you kind of you use that to use your relationships with those characters at the side even though it was in slow motion and then once it became your turn to come on stage to become part of the the main part of the story again you would kind of use that sort of um momentum to bring you into that scene and uh yeah it was it was really interesting really fascinating and Benquo gets a pretty raw deal doesn't he not 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 <laughs> not, not really the the most happiest of stories for him no yeah no it, sadly it doesn't all work out for Banco in the end uh he doesn't he doesn't quite <laughs> He doesn't quite get what he thinks he's going to get, you know, with the whole, you know, oh, maybe I'll become king and maybe, you know, my, my kids will all be kings and that'll be great, you know, but it doesn't, as with the witches, it doesn't always work out how you think it is with uh, their promises. There's always sadly. a bit of a twist, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, always. Yeah, and, uh, he, he needs to pick some better friends, I feel. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then later in, later in 2011, uh, you came back to the Bull Elephant Theatre and played Don Alba in Don Carlos. Do you remember much of that time? Yeah, um, 
again the the blue elephant theater i think you know it's a sort of fantastic theater it really is it kind of it's got that sort of wide stage and stuff like that and again we got to use that to kind of keep the actors on stage and kind of tell a bit of a story at the sides again as well which was cool and yeah it was it was really interesting play the kind of power struggle that kind of went on with um you know don carlos and the the king philip and stuff like that and um there was a sort of lot of sort of more politics to that one i felt there was that sort of interesting politics of who was really in control who really had the power and uh there was kind of a bit of a reveal towards the end that i think um about uh simon billington's character the uh Oh, what, what was it? He 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 was uh, the inquisitor. That he kind of came in and had the real authority, even over the king, about what should happen. You know, should Don Carlos survive? Should he be executed? And uh, yeah, it, it was it was really interesting the sort of political aspect of that play. I felt mm-hmm. so a bit quite different to the kind of um, physical gung ho Macbeth later that year. It was much more of a a cerebral discussion mm. political play maybe yeah 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 there was a lot more sort of that aspect to it which was really interesting yeah and and the, the writing of Frederick Schiller is very different to the writing of of Shakespeare isn't it much much more um maybe intellectual or flowery or or um certainly Macbeth anyway I think yeah definitely yeah there was there was a lot more of that sort of uh intellectual sort of talk and thought process behind it um it was definitely yeah it was very interesting to sort of see that different style of classical theater um which yeah was really really cool seeing how like you know the characters were sort of brought to life from this this uh, production that you know you kind of you kind of read it through and you're kind of trying to figure it out because there is a lot to it that you know there's a lot going on um so to kind of see it all brought brought together was really really cool and uh, like i said the different relationships and politics of the different characters was yeah really really interesting to see Then 2012 came around, the year of the Olympics, and we were in the Isle of Dogs uh, doing a, a rep of King Lear and As You Like It at the Space. Um, you played Edmund and you played Oliver Du Bois, but one in Edmund and King Lear and Oliver Du Bois and As You Like It. Do you, is there much you can remember about that, that crazy time <laughs> where we rehearsed two plays in, in three weeks and, and, and we're performing them alternate nights? Yeah, I can remember it was manic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah trying to, yeah, get the, you know, everything down with those two plays in, in you know, that short period was, was pretty intense, but it was, it was really, it was really cool because um, I think they were, they were so different as well, the two productions um obviously you know king lear you know that sort of dark sort of uh tale of you know um betrayal and everything else and there was a as you like it i I really liked it they kind of had that sort of lighter fun sort of aspect to it as well i think we had uh, a bit of sort of dance sort of movement and stuff especially with with the opening and so on and at, at the end as well so there was it was had a nice sort of antithesis between the two. So yeah, it was cool kind of switching from one to the other and back again. So yeah, and, I really enjoyed that. And you were all with the same the same company was doing both productions, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we all had to sort of switch from being sort of one one character that's maybe a bit sort of evil and you know corrupt and everything to the next one. Uh, someone who's a lover and happy and flowery and, yeah. and getting hurt by a lion exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> as you do yeah I don't I don't think we had a lion did we but <laughs> we did we didn't we didn't see no, it, but we no we just we just saw the wound yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we had that um I don't know if you remember we had that we'd bought in set so the space is a convert, old converted church that has 
has an actual lift. Do you remember the lift as well? Oh um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we actually were able to, you know, a fringe venue with it with the lift that comes out of the floor, and yeah, um, I think that we used that literally as an elevator, as a lift at the beginning of our of our as you like it, didn't we? Um, and then it was a pit for um, King Lear. Um, but yeah, we brought in this this that we built an octagon in the middle of the space to create a in the round theatre. Um, do you? Uh, had you worked in the space before or have you worked in there subsequently? Uh, no, I had, I had never worked there before. I haven't, I mean, I've seen a few plays there mm -hmm. um, before and since, but that, yeah, that was my only time working in this, in that theatre. But yeah, it was, it was really interesting the way that we um, sort of created that stage in the middle and had the audience sat around because it, you know, working in the round is always fascinating because you can't just, give your delivery in one direction you know you've got to constantly be thinking okay well what are the people behind me getting what are the people to the side of me getting and trying to be you know more open to allow the whole audience to get involved um you know which which was pretty cool i was wondering there's that sort of energy of in the round stuff in that um if, you know some people say you've just got to keep it moving you just got to keep it moving around the space and sometimes I find that actually when an actor just keeps moving around, it's quite hard to focus on what they're saying. But I suppose there's a bit of a balance there, right? You know, if you're if you're yeah. working in the round, um, just keeping it open, keeping it working. I wonder what what how you felt about that. Was is it just a bit more knackery, or actually do you find energy comes off that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, it, it is sort of you do get the energy sort of building from that that you've got, you know, you can't just go down to like one little corner and have a quiet conversation over there because the audience there, yeah, they'll have a great time, but the ones at the opposite are like, what's going on? <laughs> so you can't, you kind of do need to keep it that sort of openness and, you know, you can have those moments of stillness as well. So you can have that sort of balance that, yeah, there's sort of manic things that are going on at a certain point, people's eyes getting gouged out and everything else, which was really cool. But then you could have those sort of, you know, moments of stillness, maybe, you know, with, the two two people talking in the center of the stage and then you know you can kind of keep it still but have a bit of distance so you do keep it open so that the whole audience can get involved and uh yeah it did have a sort of nice balance to it i think you've also probably got to just accept that at some point people are just going to get your back and your bum aren't they you know it's just <laughs> there's an acceptance that that you know if it's truly in the round you know 50 percent of the audience are going to get your back so you better engage your back and your bum <laughs> well this is it yeah you've got to, you've got to accept that I suppose as an audience member that sometimes you're not always going to get the the, the angle that you want but um I well think it depends we... on which angle you want well maybe that's thinking. what people came for yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah everyone leaves happy that's that's all that matters <laughs> and everyone got a story um so then uh, a year later, you came back to Edmund. You did Edmund again in King Lear and then played Jupiter in Christopher Marlowe's Dido, Queen of Carthage, again in a rep, uh, but this time at the Greenwich Theatre. Um, again, we did it. We rehearsed two plays in three weeks and then and then did them on alternating nights th throughout the run. What were um, we thinking? I don't know. Well, we were young, Ricky. We were young. Blimey. <laughs> um, do you... Was that process and that uh, that experience uh, similar? Do you remember how how did how did that go for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was kind of similar in a, in a lot of ways. I think you know we kind of we learnt you learnt some lessons from the previous time we did it and kind of used the good stuff and tried to you know keep the same sort of energy and everything else. And the you know it was cool having that sort of cast alternating again with the different characters um so yeah that that was cool and i think i really enjoyed doing it in the greenwich theater because i think this the stage kind of lent itself to those stories better i think like you could you still had a bit you know the greenwich theater we had that sort of little bit of thrust that you could kind of come out and use that as well but um i think the sort of the width kind of gave it a, gr a grander feel especially for king lear mm -hmm. um for you know some of those scenes where like you know lear's lear's come out and you've got the whole court around Lear, you know, and uh, well, Lear was dividing up her kingdom and stuff like that. Um, and it just, I think it was really sort of striking in the visuals of that uh, at the Greenwich Theatre, which was cool. And we kind of used the uh, the lanes that we created some sort of lanes on the 
on the stage where okay if you're down this this part like more upstage or downstage you're kind of going in the straight line across here so that's your corridor in which you know you're maybe meeting someone and you're having a conversation here but in another lane you know further downstage there's someone else in a different corridor coming across so you could kind of have those those different avenues of uh communication where two scenes might be going on at the sort of same time but these people aren't in the same place so it was kind of an inter interesting use of the space that way forgotten about that lewis you know corridors i've entirely forgotten about that <laughs> blimey <laughs> it's strange what stays with you isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and that those corridors were created by light weren't they they were they were kind of across the stage and there was a series of them and and yeah just just trying to get a visual image for the for the listeners um you were you were kind of you you were very contained in, in a very small sliver of light and that was your corridor is that right yeah that's right yeah there was the sort of lights at the, at the sides of the stage going straight across so you you had to stay in that specific corridor that tight space otherwise you would be out of the light and uh, it did it did kind of give that sort of a, sort of enclosed secretive sort of feel to a lot of the sort of meetings between like you know Edmund and Goneril or or whoever else that um when there's sort of secret chats going on, it, it did feel that sort of intimacy, which was quite cool. And was the was the production the same as the production that was at the space the year before? No, it was it it was different. It was um, I mean, a, a, there was a lot of aspects which you know we we had some some of the same cast. I, I don't know, probably about say fifty percent maybe, but we brought in some uh, new people who gave a sort of new energy to some of the characters, which I thought was really cool. Um, and yeah, I think the sort of physical aspect of it as well. Uh, we had, we were able to do, I think, some pretty cool physical stuff, like with uh, with Lear, this sort of sort of blow wind, crack, you know, crack your cheek speech. We had, we were all lifting lifting Lear up um, in the sort of like physical theater sort of aspect of as if up on a mountain being blasted by the wind, which was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I, th I think. There was we kind of again i think we kind of held on to the good stuff and let go of some of the the stuff that didn't quite work as well and and made those sort of changes which really i think brought around a really cool so kind of an, an evolution on yeah exactly it had that evolution which um i think yeah really worked really well at the greenwich theater it was really good do you remember the opening of, of macbeth at the greenwich theater Opening of, of Macbeth at the Greenwich Theatre. I'm sorry, I'm sorry <laughs> opening of uh, King Lear at Greenwich Theatre. Yeah, I do. It was just absolutely insane. We <laughs> had to run backwards and forwards. I had to wear this gas mask that we hardly <laughs> see out of and like try to avoid running into somebody and knocking them out. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was because it was so manic, I think it gave a great energy to the, the start of the production. Sure, sure. Which, which, uh, in stark contrast to the more um, serene uh, Dido Queen of Carthage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was Dido Queen of Carthage just had this sort of um, really sort of like classy sort of feel of like this, like beautiful, like umbrellas, like colorful umbrellas and the sort of gentle sort of light that just gave this sort of serene feel to it. That was, yeah, really interesting. And, and like you say that it wasn't, it didn't have that sort of manic aspect to it and even i think towards the end of the production once you know dido was um sort of committing suicide on a burning you know by a pile of books or whatever that we had again the sort of umbrellas sort of moving around um quite slowly like you know it was uh instead of being manic about it it was more gentle mm -hmm. which again gave a sort of different aspect to it and uh, if if anyone wants to see that image, there's a, a, the, the you know the iconic image of of Dido burning at the end of Dido Queen of It is the cover uh, of the 2021 calendar. Um, Just to say to everyone, it's a stylistic uh, <laughs> staging. You're not literally seeing a picture of a woman burning to death. That is true. Um, just, that is true. Just to be very clear, we're not signposting you to a picture of a woman burning to death. It's a, a theatrical representation. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. <laughs> <laughs> just so people don't think, what on earth are you sending me to? Blimey. Yes. yes. Um, then... Uh, a couple of years later, in 2015, 
Uh, UK oh, just before we move on, oh, yeah, yeah. do you remember, Lewis, though, the, the lovely way that um, Jupiter and Ganymede were frolic frolicking oh. in the umbrellas and the clouds? There was a, there was a wonderful moment where, uh, for, for folks listening, that at the start of Dido, the, the audience walked in, the whole stage was full of these sort of massive, in fact, I've still got some of them somewhere, massive umbrellas, huge, bigger than golfing umbrellas, huge, all colours, and they sort of, in a wanky way, represented the clouds. Uh, but underneath, Lewis and the wonderful James Harper was positioned before the house was open, I think. So you were under there for a good 10, 15 minutes, weren't you? And uh, we sort of played it that the, the crash of the lightning and thundering thunder started to play. And then from within the clouds, there was the god Jupiter, let's say, uh, playing with his Ganymede. Uh, so it was a bit of a, a sex scene going on. And I always remember there was that one matinee where I, was, I popped my head in at the back and the, the crowd... Uh, we're full of, I think we've got the Saga group in, so there's a full of all these wonderfully excited uh, older citizens all waiting for this thing. And it just dawned on me all of a sudden, oh my God, you know, I'm about to start a play with all this um, homoerotic naked men having sex and, and, and all these grannies are on the front row. And I was really panicked. And I remember turning to the artist director of the Greenwich Theatre and just saying, oh, what, what do we do? And he said, well, not really a great deal you can do. It's about to start. And of course, stupidly, and I sort of woke up to this and I remember telling my nan about this and she said, well, you know, you do realise that we've had sex. We have had had sex. I'm your grandmother. And that why do you think they will, you know, and I remember her say, you know, remember her saying that, uh, of, of course, we do know what that, that is just because we're little old ladies doesn't mean we haven't had it live. But of course, the grands and the granddads absolutely loved it and were, you know, laughing with glee when uh, Lewis and James arose from the, the, the umbrellas. But that was a very, very strange way to start the play, I suppose, but certainly got people's attention. Yeah, as uh, my, my grandmother came to see it as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't tell her about it until she saw it. So, that yeah, it was a bit of a surprise for her, too. But uh, she absolutely loved it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. Yeah, it, it was good fun. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with that play. Definitely. And then in 2015, uh, you came back uh, uh, to play Vindici in the Revenge's Tragedy. And I think at this, the suggestion of this play actually came from you, didn't it? We, you know, you, me and Ricky had had, had a couple of conversations over the, you know, the years between um, Lear and, and Dido at the Greenwich and, and Revenge's Tragedy. And you'd said that that was a role that you'd, you'd kind of always wanted to play. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So yeah, I'd, I'd done a, like, you know, a bit of a reading on like, you know, Middleton and uh, Vindici while I was at uh, Kingston University. And I just loved the play. I just felt there was, you know, so much to it again about the relationships and betrayal and, you know, uh, you know, what, what would you do in this situation where, you know, this person had, you know, killed the person that you loved more than anything. And how far would you go to get your vengeance? You know, what, what, at what point have you become as corrupt and as evil as the person that you're, you know, wanting to take down for those very reasons? Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a really sort of fascinating story. And, yeah, I'd, I'd always thought his, his sort of character, I, I love I those sort of characters where you kind of, they're, they're playing that line between are they a hero or are they a villain? Like, can you justify their actions based on, you know, what's happened to them or have they crossed the line and gone too far? And now, you know, you can't relate to, you can't accept that, that behavior. You can't accept what they've done. Uh, and I think Vindici kind of plays that, that sort of role, you know, of, you know, does he cross the line? Well, you know, I think he certainly does at the end, doesn't he? But um, it's quite, it's quite interesting seeing him make that journey and making those choices about you know who who's to blame for this who who who's really to blame for the death of my loved one and you know do i do, does everyone involved every person who's like a family member of this person deserve to die for my vengeance um and you know is it my place to come and take those actions to get that vengeance against them even though they haven't necessarily been the ones who's done something to me but because i consider them evil and corrupt i have a right to you know take vengeance upon them so yeah no it, it was a really interesting story that i think i've always had been fascinated by 
and how how was your journey as Vendici? You know, trying to were you trying to work out what side you as an actor landed on, or you ju you just playing that playing the text and seeing where it takes you? Yeah, this I think this was the thing. I kind of I think whenever you kind of start a rehearsals with a production, you're always going to have your sort of preconceived ideas about what you think that journey is and who that character is and what their motivations are. But I think you kind of need to leave that at the door when you come in on day one, because as you sort of rehearse and, and you know, as you're working with different actors with their interpretations of the, the characters you're working with, then that's always not, <clears throat> it's always naturally going to change. So you've got to be willing to accept that, that, you know, your interpretation will change and things will change about what you thought their motivation was versus what maybe it actually is. You know, you are always learning as you go along. And uh, yeah, I think that sort of character development was quite interesting to go through about what I thought the story of Vindici was versus what it was by the end of what, you know, what I'd learned about him. So I think you always have to be as open as you can to that uh, from day one, really. It's extraordinary what revenge does to people, though, isn't it? And I think that's, it seems to be a theme that the um, early modern playwrights were obsessed with, you know, really intrigued by what makes us tick as humans. And um, revenge can lead us to all sorts. I, I often think it, and of course, it's probably no surprise to people who know the plays, but it's quite similar to Hamlet, isn't it? You know, the difference being is Vindicci does something about it fairly promptly, whereas Hamlet has to think about it quite a lot. Um, but uh, maybe Vindicci's a doer and Hamlet's a thinker, I don't know. But uh, the, you know, being preoccupied by this idea of revenge and, and having to seek revenge, the eye for an eye sort of situation, which I suppose is within us all, isn't it? Which, so it makes it quite complex. I don't mean complicated, but complex in a good way. Um, exploring the lengths we're prepared to go through. It's quite scary, but also hilarious. Yeah, no, it was. It was, um, I think that's the thing about it. it was, there was so many sort of funny moments of like, you know, he was obviously trying to disguise himself to get himself into the court. And, uh, you know, they were quite as the whole family was this kind of grotesque sort of debauched <laughs> people that um, he had to kind of go along with that and kind of get himself involved in these situations and play up that aspect of himself as well. And, you know, it, what was funny about it was that that's kind of line again of like, where was he? kind of doing it just to try and get into the court and convince them that he was um, he was their servant and he was happy to be a part of it. And at which point was he actually enjoying it himself? And, you know, you know, did that kind of corrupt him as well? Because, you know, as we find, you know, power and money and luxury does tend to sometimes uh, corrupt people. Yeah, it's not to say he doesn't enjoy it, is it? And of course, mm. I suppose that's what the audience is plunged into as well. You know, we're, we're enjoying watching... Um people getting their comeuppance, you know, and that might be people being bludgeoned to death. <laughs> I, laugh, I laugh like a panto villain then, but you know, there's some, I find that sort of sense of humour um, really exciting. I think there's something wonderful about the macabre um, attitude of the early moderns. Maybe maybe not so in vogue at the moment after COVID, maybe everyone's in the mood for a bit, something a little bit lighter, but I don't know. I think it taps into something uh, within us all. Um, and there is a sort of darkness, but darkness doesn't have to be serious. Darkness can be uh, hilarious at times, I think. And the, the complexity and the brilliance of, of the early modern writers, which, which take the, the, Greek, um, the Greek drama writers' idea, you know, they, they talked a lot about um, revenge, but it was, they were much simpler stories. They were, they were kind of stories about the people, whereas the, the complexity and the brilliance of the early modern writers is that not only are they doing those revenge stories, you know, you follow that arc of, of that character, but they're also, they're also an indictment or a, or a comment on the society as well. So the family, that, you know, that royal family or the, or the Duke's family were the representation of, of that kind of indictment of the upper, upper classes um, that Middleton was writing about, I think. So then we went to 2020 and you came back again and 
you played Banquo again in Macbeth. Thank you, Moon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what was that experience like coming back? I know you'd, 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 you'd done Edmund again uh, two years in a row, but this is these are tech, well nine years apart. Now, what was that experience like coming back for Macbeth and, and to play Banquo again? Yeah, I mean, that was that was like sort of a crazy experience, to be honest, that kind of like circle moment of coming, you know, back to Lazarus and playing Banquo again in Macbeth. But, you know, nine years later in a totally different theatre and di totally different cast and everything. And uh, it, it was really interesting. Again, it, it was that thing that you had to leave your, you know, sort of ideas of what you think the story is and who Banquo is at the, at the door on day one, because, again, everything changes, you know. And oh, I really did want to find a new interpretation about Banquo that I think there was a bit of, uh, I felt a bit of unfinished business about him that I felt there was a bit more to him than uh, maybe the first time I'd done it that I could discover. Um, I think the first time I kind of just played him as Macbeth's friend who gets all bad luck, unlucky Banquo, you know, like all oh, the whole world <laughs> went against you and, you know, didn't, things didn't work out, but you were a good guy, really. Um, whereas, the, you know, I, I thought, you know what, I, I want to find a bit more about this, like that, you know, Banquo, he does have his own ambitions, really, doesn't he? You know, he, he's, he's thinking about himself, about how maybe I could be king as well. Maybe that's what, you know, the witches promised me, didn't they? You know, maybe that's in my future. Maybe maybe we don't need Macbeth. Maybe we can get rid of him and then I'll be I'll be a good king, which I think everybody tends to tends to think in these stories, don't they? That they, you know, well, I'll, I'll be the good king. Yeah, everything will be all right with me. <laughs> He certainly seems to be the person who clocks uh, first off the suspicion of Macbeth, isn't, isn't he? He seems to, it seems to be the one that clocks on soonest, something's not right, and of course then attempts to try and get out, away and with Fleance, which goes disastrously wrong. But um, I, I think it's, I, I think about characters, and it's not a very sexy way of thinking about it, but characters and actors don't tend to like it, but I think of actor, uh, characters as uh, devices. What's the device? Why is Banco in this play? What's the point? Why does why Shakespeare whack it in there? And I think he and Macduff, and, Mac, and Lady Macduff and the kids, seem to be actually um, examples of where Macbeth's allegiance is fall by the side, or, or it shows us the extent of what Macbeth's prepared to do. Um, but it doesn't also mean that no one's clocked onto it. And I think there's something really interesting about Banquo, and I think you played this really, really effectively, is this idea of, um, I'm onto you, I'm suspicious. He's, he's actually, he doesn't, he doesn't completely, there, he doesn't go unchallenged, I suppose. Uh, and of course, the trouble is, is Banquo challenges him and gets done for it. Um, but I think they're just, they're just as significant then as the role of Macbeth, right? You know, maybe that's why he's there. There's something about um, being challenged that, that actually not everyone's comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. um, is it Banquo who goes, but, or is it, I can't remember now, you, you'll probably know better than I, um, but why did you kill the servants, the, the Chamberlains? Is it Banquo who says that, or is it, do you know uh, when, we, when we find out Duncan's dead and they go, you know, oh, it, 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 the king's been murdered and Lady M says, in our house, it's well, terrible anywhere, love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, yeah. And then is, isn't there a line of, um, but wherefore, why did you, why did you kill the, the Chamberlains? Is that Banquo? Is it Banquo or something uh, tough? A, a listener who yeah. you know, yeah. there's, there's a challenge to that, you know, why? Why on earth did you do that? And so, of course, it keeps the Macbeths on the hot foot. Um, and, and the way that you and David played those roles, I think, um, put Jamie, who was playing Macbeth, on the, on the back foot. And that's part of the game, right? It's not an easy mm. game for Macbeth to go through. He's got to come up with his stuff on the spot, in the moment, at the moment. So yeah. there's a wonderful chemistry between you three that kind of, you know, go from best mates to actually, I'm really suspicious you're, something's happening here. Mm. Well, that, that was it. I think the what was interesting with, you know, sort of Banquo and Macduff was that because, you know, a lot of the other characters kind of just through sort of self-preservation, uh, preservation, they just kind of go along with like, oh, oh, yes, yes, you're a fantastic king, you know. Oh, we all love Macbeth. But uh, because, you know, Banquo and Macduff kind of show up that, that unease that you know we don't we know something's going on here it kind of shows up a bit of a mirror to Macbeth to let him know that you know everything isn't rosy you know you you have done these terrible crimes and you know we're, we're on to you we know about it and uh you know he, he's he's gone too far hasn't he at that point that uh it's funny though how it? they all do a runner <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> do you know what I mean? We like to think of these things as these big burly sort of, uh, and actually they all end up doing a runner. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, Macduff gets all the way to England, but um, all Banky Moon gets done in a ditch. Yeah, sadly, yeah, he just d- doesn't quite make it past the ditch, does he? Fleance does though and of course it just backs up those weird sisters prophecies isn't it they will become kings yeah that's it always watch out for Fleance he's he's a (laughs) he's a trickster that one he's a trick he's a slippery soul isn't he gets past those and I often thought of the murder I mean that was hilarious I remember rehearsing the murderous stuff and you just think what a bunch of stupid bugger I mean come on Macbeth you surely could have hired a bit more of a I don't know, efficient hit squad. The murderers just seem to get things wrong and wrong again and again and again. You know, uh, maybe Shakespeare's being funny there, or maybe that was just the way that we were doing it, I don't know. But, um, yeah, the, everyone starts to run. Everyone starts to do a runner on him. But Benko does get to come back, though, doesn't he? He gets to come back a lot more bloody. A bit um, messy. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, in this, produ- this, this production in 2020, you had to, you had to run to the centre of the stage in absolute darkness didn't you <laughs> yeah so yeah we had to so i was covered in uh this sort of red goo which was um i, I was kind of like a, like a pastry or something like some sort of cake it was like this sugary mix um so if you couldn't if you couldn't see me coming i'm sure you could smell me but uh <laughs> yeah i had to i had to there was a bit where you know this sort of banquet scene with Macbeth uh when he's around the table with his thanes and stuff that the lights cut her, dropped out, and then I had a couple, like two seconds to get to the middle of the stage to then be stood there waiting, covered in blood, and I had to run in pitch pitch black to to get to my mark. And uh, I think in rehearsals a few times I kind of ran into the table and smashed my head off a pole or something. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I got, we got there in the end, I think. But, and just urge the listeners, you know, we don't, don't just keep running into a hole. Yeah. <laughs> stop and then work it out and go, right, how do we yeah. do it safely? Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it was pr- pretty terrifying. You definitely got a few screams in there on yeah. that arrival, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was just that thing, wasn't it? That sort of repetitive, like, right, try and count the steps kind of. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, when we got it down, that I was there and then the lights go bam then uh, you do just kind of seem to appear out of nowhere. So I think, I think it was, yeah, it was quite shocking, which was cool. And then obviously the, li- the lights and the blood worked quite well. I think that's what's wonderful about sort of open Brechtian design, really, is you sort of go, where on earth did it come from? And of course, we won't give the magic away, inverted commas. It wasn't that magical, listeners. <laughs> um, but you know, there's something really wonderful, I think, about you just literally look on stage, like, there's nowhere for anyone to hide. How have they appeared? Um, it's all muscle memory and a bit of choreography and a bit of light, isn't it? That's how, we, that's how it's done. Magic. Well done. Well done. Um, Lewis, you spent quite a few years going up and doing shows at the Edinburgh Festival, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so when I, I graduated uh, 2010 uh, from Kingston Uni Drama, I then went up to Edinburgh. Um, we did a production through the university uh, of... Uh, Spring Awakening, um, which was uh, sort of our final production that, that year. That Then we took it to Edinburgh Festival. Uh, and yeah, I just had such a great experience. I, I ended up uh, going and doing Edinburgh Festival again in 2011, 2012, and uh, 2014 as well. Um, and I kind of, I got involved with a circus theatre company uh, called Backhand Theatre. And uh, that was, that was really cool because we kind of, we use sort of circus performance to incorporate into theatre productions. Like we had a production we did of uh, The Tempest and we kind of used sort of aerial lines, like people on counterweights flying over the audience at the beginning when there was the storm. And we used these kind of sheets as if they were big sails. So it's like people were being thrown about on the ship and stuff like that. Uh, And then we had, um, we kind of used a trapeze and so on for the lovers scene and like a, which was quite cool. So there was, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, Edinburgh's one of the coolest places on earth to be in August during the festival. Absolutely. Uh, pretty exhausting as well though, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I remember in uh, 2011, I think it was, I did, I was doing three shows a day. So oh, I was gosh. doing, 
I was doing a one-man show called Sideshow at uh, 2 p.m. And then we did The Tempest at about uh, 5 p.m. And then we did a show called Tales from Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe at 10 p.m. So it was a pretty full-on day, especially starting with a, a one-man show sure. at 2 o'clock. <laughs> and then in, in between, you're uh, up, you know, up and down the Royal Mail promoting each of these shows as well, are you? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you've got to go out and flyer and tell people about your show because there's, you know, obviously there's thousands of shows on. So you've got to, if you don't go out and promote your show, then, you know, you're going to struggle getting people in. Obviously, rev- your reviews are great if you've got a good review, but that'll only go so far because there's so many people just popping up for the day and stuff like that that they're just going to go down the Royal Mile and whoever speaks to them, they end up going and see it. So, yeah, you got to work hard, try and make sure you've got audiences and stuff like that. So, but that's part of the fun. It really is. Um, you know, you get to go, go out the Royal Mile, maybe do a little snippet of your, of your show maybe and uh, chat to people about it and tell them, tell them what's going on. So, yeah, no, it's really cool. And how did you, so you're doing a, a circus act where you've got trapeze and counterweights, aerial flying. How did you get that all set up in the 10 minutes or whatever it is that you have to set up before the show? <laughs> so um, in, the, in the sort of, we used the same theatre space for all three shows, which had a, a sort of specialist rig um, built over it. Um, and the trapeze was just kind of always there up at the top. So it was tied up the whole day. So then when, when we had our show, we had just had to kind of release it and bring it down. And uh, we had our sort of um, all of our gear in the room next door, like our sort of um, harnesses and stuff like that. So we'd, we'd have that ready to go. And then you go and the, the ropes would be at the side. You clip yourself in. So we were ready to do the sort of counterweights and stuff like that. So it was a bit manic trying to set, set all that up so quickly. But, you know, once, you, once you've sort of done it a few times, get into the routine, it just became habit. So, but yeah, it was, a, it was a really fun thing to do and something sort of different to sort of bring into storytelling, I think, which was yeah, really cool to see. And variety, right? Spice of life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't say I've ever sort of seen a trapeze used in the middle of a Shakespeare but before. So it was quite, <laughs> yeah. it was quite cool to be involved with that. Amazing. And speaking of variety, uh, you're an accomplished actor, but also you're a firefighter now as well. How did that happen? What, you know, what drew you to that line of work and, and how did you become a firefighter? It's something that I always kind of had in my mind that, you know, it, it's something that I would love to do. Um, but I, I just, you know, I, I never quite decided it was the right time, I suppose. And um, a, a couple of years ago, it, it was, it was actually quite funny. I was, uh, I used to work at a Bikram yoga studio as a studio manager for a chain of studios at London bridge and Canary wharf. And I was cycling to work at uh, London bridge and I was going across a sort of mini, mini roundabout on my, on my bike. And a lorry came up the side of me on the mini roundabout and uh, knocked me off my bike. And it was kind of this, you know, kind of life flash before my eyes sort of moment that I thought I'm, I'm done here. Um, but you know, fortunately, he, he just clipped my back wheel, and I was all right. But uh, it kind of made me sort of have this sort of realization moment of thinking, you know, what am I, what am I kind of doing with my, you know, my work and my job, and like, you know, I, I'm loving obviously acting and so on, but like, you know, do I want to be working at a yoga studio for the rest of my life? Like, is that what I really want to be doing? And I thought, well, I've always wanted to join the fire brigade, and it kind of made me just think, you know what? I'm going to put in an application and yeah, literally I think that week I stuck in an application. Uh, and then the, the funny thing is you don't hear, hear about it for a little while. And then I'd like a month or so later, I got a thing saying that I'd made it through the initial stage. Uh, and then you go to the next stage, we got to do an interview and then they get you in to do a bit of sort of role playing and uh, uh, sort of physical examination, like tests and so on which was pretty cool. I mean, the, uh, the role play thing obviously was quite, quite fun. Like as an actor going into it, <laughs> I was, I was just like, yeah, yeah, no worries. <laughs> it was uh, just, you had to sort of put in, put on some fire gear. And then they, I think they hired, they hired another actor um, to uh, come in and then pretend to be this irate person demanding uh, to speak to an officer who wasn't there. And I had to try and deal with them and calm them down. So yeah. 
it was it was quite a sort of fun little workshop really I always remember, um, Lewis, I went on a first aid course once and uh, well, I've been on a few times, but um, that was my favourite bits where you've got scenarios, you know, you have to come in and say, you know, call the ambulance, stand back and all this sort of thing. And I always remember the first one I went on with a colleague of mine. This is when I used to work in box office. And um, I just always remember the trainer going, are you the two that work in the arts? We sort of burst that laughing. How would you know? Like, well, judging on those performances from Holby City or Casualty, you know, I just was committed, Lewis. I'm just committed. That was the thing. I went in there and made sure there was no danger to anyone, like my life depended on it. Um, but I bet they I bet they were impressed with your role play. Like, wow, you know, you really communicate. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tried my best. I mean, I, I got through, fortunately, so <laughs> I must have done all right, at least. But um it is funny, like with the fire brigades, that um, there is a lot of similarities to sort of theatre work and so on. That, like, you know, you do have to rehearse, you know, you have to go through and do your, you know, study, like, you know, find out, right, how does this work? What do you do in this scenario? Have a proper understanding of it, then rehearse it as a team. So, you know, there's all that sort of teamwork aspect to it. And then, you know, when we're on station, if you get a shout, it's like, right, lights are up curtains open go time to perform and you know the, the pressure's on to do it right and there, there's no sort of like oh can we go back and do that again you know you've <laughs> got you you've got to get it right the first time yeah amazing i'd never have put those two things together but yeah you're totally right hey folks this creative stuff does have transferable skills <laughs> tell the government now anyway moving on Moving on, yes, righto. We're going to do the sixty-second challenge, Lewis. Um, yeah. If you've listened to any of the any of our episodes before, you know that I'm going to throw six uh, uh, questions at you, uh, and you're going to see how many you can answer in sixty seconds. Okay. Um, you, you, so it's quick fire. You can answer yeah. as many, uh, answer them as you go. If you can pass, um, but that question won't get added to your final score. Um, we have a leaderboard for for season two. Uh, Colette O'Rourke is on 13. So 13 is the number to beat. You've got to answer 13, uh, answer 13 questions. There's no wrong answers, though, because they're, you know, your answers. So um, okay. it's, it's not graded. It's just how many can you, can you answer in, in 60 seconds? Okay. It's for the audience to judge. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ricky's going to be on the clock. He's going to count he's gonna make sure that we are keeping to that 60 seconds uh, and ricky what have we got today to tell us when we're up when our time's we're back, up well back with pop for popular demand i can't tell you how many people have tweeted in well i could but i won't uh, lots of people did uh this week returns the tape measure of time not only does it measure distance in this case it also measures time Nice, nice. Well, there we go. A little bit of uh, extra science there for you. Um, so I've got 60 seconds on the clock, Lewis. Answer as many as you can in that time, and we'll see where you place on the leaderboard. Lewis, are you ready? I am ready. Ricky, are you ready? There we go. Okay, 60 seconds on the clock. Lewis, dog or cats? Dogs. Uh, can you handle hot food? Yes. What are you currently reading? Uh, pass. Uh, if you could change your name, what would it be? James. If you had to eat one thing for every meal going forward, what would it be? Pizza. What's your most used emoji? Crying emoji. Sweet or savoury? Sweet. Where is your happy place? The sea. What qualities do you value in people? Kindness. Uh, what are you most afraid of? The dark. <laughs> if past lives were real, what was yours? Uh, sea captain. <laughs> what was your first job? Uh, cocktail bar. Too hot or too cold? Too cold. Uh, what's the first career you dreamed of having, having as a kid? Fireman. Uh, what's your party trick? Hammering a nail up my nose. The tape measure of time. That is 60 seconds. Okay, I'm just going to count up uh, um, uh, your score here. Lewis, how many do you think you got? Oh, probably about nine or ten, maybe. Yeah. Well, you did much better than that. 
you got 14 in 60 seconds. Oh, 14. Oh, so oh, I'm oh. sorry, Colette. Lewis has pipped you to the post, and you are Lewis is now the top of our leaderboard for season two. Hey. Congratulations. Lewis, a huge thank you for joining us today. It's been fantastic to talk and catch up. Uh, can you tell our listeners where they can find you on social media? Yeah, absolutely. So um, people can find me on Instagram under Lewis James Davidson or Twitter as Lewis J Davidson. Amazing. Check out what Lewis is doing and what he's doing uh, with the fire brigade. Um, thank you, Lewis. Been great to talk. Yeah, absolutely. Great talking to you guys as well. Really enjoyed it. And everyone else, thank you for tuning in. We will be back in two weeks' time with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved by checking out our Facebook page, Twitter profile at Lazarus Theatre, and bits and bobs on our Instagram at Lazarus Theatre. All the details can be found on our new website, www.lazarustheatrecompany.co.uk. I've been Gavin harrington Adedra. And I've been Ricky Dukes. Until next time, stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatrecompany.co.uk, or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Your support is vital to help secure our future in the coming year. Each and every penny will make a difference. You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Jukes and Gavin Harrington Odebra, produced by Lazarus Theatre The music you have been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bert Holbrook.